Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For this episode, we were happy to bring on someone that's been on our list for a long time, scholar and writer James Goldberg. James is a fascinating person and Latter-day Saint, and he brings a truly unique perspective to our faith. In his words, his family is Jewish on one side, Sikh on the other, and Mormon in the middle. He works as a historian at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and is also a poet, a novelist, essayist, playwright, documentary filmmaker, scholar, and translator. He's won the Association for Mormon Letters Award in both drama and novel categories for different works and has been a finalist in the poetry, creative nonfiction, and criticism categories. He's also one of the rotating cast of scholars on BYU TV's series Come Follow Up. Our conversation was wide-ranging, and it turns out that James has interesting insights to share on just about anything. So we covered several topics, including how Latter-day Saints can approach the Hebrew Bible, how to wrestle with other difficult scripture or church history, and the virtue of the slow and distilled process of creating and reading poetry. We also discussed James's book of poetry, Let Me Drown with Moses, and its provocative title, including the virtue of choosing faith in a chaotic world while maintaining our own moral compass. So a huge thanks to James Goldberg for coming on, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Okay, James, I think a cool place to start would be with your heritage. You call yourself a Sikh Jewish Mormon, and that's a, like a lot to take in all at once. So can we just like start there and talk about maybe like the cultures and the traditions that are all part of you? Yeah, so so religiously, I'm a Latter-day Saint, right? Um, and that's that's my life, that's my community. But these other heritages, re- religious heritages, those are the stories I inherited. I've been around those ways of life, and so that's important to me. So, so on my dad's side, there's Jewish family, and on my mom's side, the the Sikh. Yeah. So, can you talk about how that was a part of your? Was it a part of your childhood? Like, yeah, were, are I these mean, were, and, in lots of little ways, right? So, I mentioned stories. Definitely, my parents both are talkers yeah, <laughs> uh, and just like telling stories. And so I'd hear the stories of Sikh gurus and different things that happen in history and ideas from that. And, you know, for Judaism, a lot of the stories are kind of tied to the calendar, right? So mm-hmm. different times of year, you'd go and tell, you know, here's the temple rededication story at Hanukkah and here's, here's this Esther story, right? Um, and so I'd have those. And then other stuff, I don't know, like my... Um, Grandpa always worked with his brother's farms in California after he helped them immigrate. And so we'd have Lion Sing Farm stationery. When I was doing homework, it was always with this, this Sikh symbol on it. And so, so yeah, it's, it's just a thing that's around. And I think that ends up shaping your way of, of thinking and writing and expressing things. I can actually... So to yeah. give you just two examples yeah, from no, this please. book, we'll that just dive in. Yes. But um, so one year we go to my aunt's house. This is actually my dad's cousin, right? But we call her aunt uh, for Passover. And she happened to tell this midrash, which so in Judaism, you have the stories that are written in the Bible. But then there are also the stories that got passed down kind of orally that go with them, that expand and that sort of thing. And who knows if they all date back 
to the probably not right, right? Yeah, yeah but they're they're still valuable as mm. stories that show you the way people imagine themselves into the stories right and yeah. and thought about what things mean and taught lessons so there's this one midrash about when Moses and the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and they're on the shore of the Red Sea that says the waters didn't part till the first guy was chin deep, <laughs> right? That he had to actually walk into the waters and the first behind him and they made that choice and then the miracle came, right? Yeah. Which is this beautiful image. So so I guess I was thinking midrashically, right? In these terms of like, what, what might it be like? What how can we use our imagination to expand the way we engage with scripture and, um, and wondered, okay, even after the waters part, how sure are you they're going to stay parted? And so I've got this oh. uh, poem that actually gives this book, Let Me Drown with Moses, its title. It's called Prayer on the Red Seashore. And it goes, if these walls of water follow, Lord, let me drown with Moses and let me praise you with my final breath for lending me his mad prophetic dream, for letting me wander out past the edge of this world beside a man who could see all the glory of Egypt and still say it wasn't enough. If these walls of water fall, O Lord, let me drown with Moses. Yes, let me die with the same fire in my eyes Moses saw in a desert bush. So that's my poem, but in some ways it's also my aunt's poem, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It yeah. it comes from the way we connect. And then on the sixth side, there's different poetry forms from the Punjabi language that, that I appreciate. I don't speak Punjabi well, but 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 that was a way of connecting for me. And then and then ideas too. So on page 30 of Let Me Drown with Moses, there's this guzzle. The sky fades to black from blue tonight, after bleeding a reddish hue tonight. God spoke the light, but he whispered the dark where I lie still and think of you tonight. The lane where we met has been bathed in the moon, so no tyrant can rule us by curfew tonight. The guru has felt God's own hands on his lips, so there's no Sikh, no Muslim, no Hindu tonight. One drop joins the river, one rises to rain, and one will distill as the dew tonight. Ek Onkar Satnam, Karta Parak. Drink a prayer like ambrosial brew tonight. And I think, yeah, again, that's just an inherited language, but but I can feel myself into my relationship with God in different ways because of these stories I grew up with. So I still consider myself a beneficiary of all those religions, mm -hmm. even if I'm not totally involved in the community. Yeah. Can I ask about the the interaction specifically of your your Judaism? And your and your Latter Day Saintism, because we we recently read uh, a book by you and your co-author Jason Olson about Jason's story as a young Jewish man who converted to uh, converted to Mormonism, and he found sort of a beautiful uh, coinciding of uh, what he had learned growing up as a Jewish person and what the Book of Mormon and Mormonism had to say about uh, uh, about the destiny of the house of israel um what what has that experience been like for you sort of merging those those two worlds specifically yeah i mean i think i think i've definitely 
it kind of brings different colors out mm. <laughs> yeah. of the whole tapestry of Mormonism when when you bring this other lens, right? And so, yeah, there's like certain themes. Um, the idea of being a people together and that kind of thing is a huge part of the restoration. And it's something that maybe I feel in a little bit different way because I have these other traditions where that's baked in. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so I think that's... That's part of the experience. There may be other things too, where, you know, growing up, sometimes there might be something somebody said in in Sunday school or in a priesthood quorum that hit me the wrong way. Yes. <laughs> because okay, I, I identified really strongly with that Jewish part of my ancestry. And so I'd go, I don't know, right? Okay. Can I ask this? In this in this era where we're talking and having very big societal conversations around cultural appropriation. It's interesting, and I've, I I feel like so naive that I've never even thought this way before, that Mormonism has so much to say uh, sort of to Jewish people, both about their past and about their future. It's giving me a little bit of discomfort, especially given the past of the Jewish people for us white people, Gentiles to say, no, like we're the house of Israel, you know, get baptized into our church and you'll become part of the house of Israel. And here's, and, and sort of teaching teaching Jewish people about their own... About a new covenant. Like, like yeah. we're, we're using these words that have a meaning for someone else in this new way. And like suddenly when you're sitting across from someone who who is Jewish, it feels like I am like I am taking all of that and saying that I'm doing it right. Right. Even and, like do you know what I mean? terms, so, terms like Zion and stuff where yeah. it feels like we've taken this a little bit for ourselves. Like, Well, I, here's, here's what I would do. I, Honestly, I don't think the appropriation parts were the biggest pain points for me growing up at all. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so I'll get to the distinction between the two. But if you think of Abrahamic religion as this tree, right, where there's this trunk and branches out, mm-hmm. right? Modern Judaism is a branch. Modern Mormonism is a branch, right? And we both have different ways we draw in the trunk. Now, if you think that your understanding is the only one, right? Mm. So like that that framing of, yeah, really join the house of Israel, that would be a problem. Now, I don't think that's our theology, right? Yeah. The Book of Mormon actually is pretty clear that God says, look, I made a covenant. That covenant is still in effect. And then there's different aspects of covenant with restoration and, wow. and authority, but it it doesn't negate Jewish covenant, right? Yeah. I will say one more thing <laughs> yeah, and then move on, which is I do think it would be nice if Latter-day Saints had a greater spiritual interest in modern Judaism and in Jewish history yeah, and not only in that biblical root because I think you learn a lot from Joseph Smith was very interested in what Christianity had lost. And so if you follow the Christian path in the trunk of the tree and then say, here's a separate path, right? Yeah. And we don't need to accept rabbinical authority or other things to appreciate that maybe they preserved some things that Christianity did not. Yeah. I think yeah. I think we could benefit a lot from an engaged okay. interaction with post-biblical Jewish history. Okay. Wow. Let, let me ask you one more thing related to that. Yeah. How do you feel about the term Old Testament? I think it's the assumptions behind the term. I think as a Latter-day Saint, you should approach that part of the Bible as having every bit 
the, the legitimacy and the example of living relationship with God that any other book of scripture has. Mm. And the attitude is right. I care about oh. that more than what you call it. Okay. I mean, I, I, honestly, I think people should be bilingual here. Yeah. Where you know that it is both the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, yeah. right? That in the context of its relationship and intertextuality with New Testament, there is this, like the Testament part is important. Now, for a Latter-day Saint, even in that relationship, you can't <laughs> have the New Testament supersede yeah. or replace the old one, right? You're making a theological mistake mm -hmm. as well as a cultural sensitivity mistake, right? Yeah. Um, but then, but yeah, I think I think it's okay that it's a testament for us, but you need to recognize it's also the Hebrew Bible, yeah, yeah. right? I think and it's sense. capable of doing these other things and don't read it as if those testament meanings are the only possible meanings or things you could get out of it. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about this tradition of the Midrash? Because I kind of wonder if part of our, our of our struggle with the Hebrew Bible is that we're approaching it so legalistically, like we're reading it for exactly what it says and trying to make it work. And I wonder if like, if is that something that we need? Like, do we need to be more open to this idea that like we can have conversations about the stories and it, and maybe we don't need to be so obsessed about the black and white if it happened historically truth, <laughs> you know? Like I, I love this idea that like, what if the waters didn't, didn't didn't part until someone was up to their ears like you know like th yeah. that can be true just as true as as any other moral of a story like if if we're learning from it then there's something true there too and it's not so much about if there was literally someone walking on wet or dry ground you know yeah. but but that's kind of a new we like don't, we don't really have a place to experiment with stories and like stretch and pull them and wrestle with them in a way that feels like condoned you know like we like we're we're really like mining for like what's the truest truth here that happened when i teach sunday school one thing that i tell people is speculation gets a bad name right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah because don't the problem is when we speculate as if we are telling the truth if you say we're imagining mm. we're speculating it's fine right and let's imagine let's speculate and let's reach god there in terms of like Historical or other questions, I think the most important thing is to remember that the scriptures are a place to meet God, right? And if those other questions are getting in the way, then toss them to the side for a minute, right? And let yourself meet God. Now, to me, it's important to be willing enough to listen to God that if he's telling me a story, if it's an allegory, that's fine. I'm not going to condemn him if my other understanding was wrong. By the same token, if God is telling me a story, I want to be ready to inhabit it as fully as if it were literally true, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to put an asterisk in my head. I'm just going to jump yeah. into the story and inhabit the story. And and yeah, maybe that sort of Midrashic approach um, of walking around the scriptures and approaching them to different angles is helpful for that, right? But I think you can you can have that same energy, yeah. Um, yeah. In the way you just personally choose to devotionally approach things and collectively, we yeah. can do that yeah. in ward settings and I do it and it's fine and people like it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a relief. I, I know there's so much other stuff we want to get to, but I think this is actually a fruitful discussion. <laughs> we haven't so started I, our questions. We have not started the questions yet. <laughs> I, but I, I want to dive in on this just a little bit more because I, I admit that when quote unquote Old Testament year rolls around, I do check out a little bit mentally from like, I'm going to get a lot out of the curriculum this year because, and it may just be my 
uh, modern day privileged millennial speaking. But yes, the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for, for example, and, you know, some of the teachings of Paul seem to resonate more strongly with me than many of the stories in the Old Testament, um, excuse me, in the Hebrew Bible. And like, I'm sure there's a lot to, I, but I, I believe you when you say there's a lot to mine there. And I'm wondering maybe if you could just give us an example of a way that you engage with the Hebrew Bible and meet and meet God there. So that just so that we could watch you do it to some extent and say like, this is something we could be doing this whole sure. year as we dive into that text. I think, okay. If you're looking for scriptural characters to be your mascots of righteousness, yeah. right? <laughs> then then the stories can be kind of puzzling and difficult yeah. sometimes, and you're not sure what to do and you walk away, right? Um, if you're looking for rules that always work, right? Like that, that can be difficult because of the cultural space, right? God was working with people. And they were bringing their assumptions just like we do. Yes. And, but I don't know, my 11-year-old kid, when we worked this year, was able to say, okay, how much of this is helping them forward? How much is what they're bringing? Where's God in this? And you can ask the question and it's fine. An 11-year-old, right? Yeah. Like we can do that. And I think that can help you okay. just change your expectation. Now, once you do that, there's all kinds of interesting stuff to discover. Um so let me give you a couple examples. One uh, in Leviticus, which is not page-turning <laughs> right. reading. <laughs> no. There's some really interesting passages at the end where they're talking about the, the laws um, and specifically some of the Sabbath laws. You have Sabbath days, Sabbath years, the Jubilee years. That's the Sabbath of Sabbath years. And it says all these things give the land rest. Mm -hmm. And if you don't keep them, if you don't give the land rest, the land will spew you out and it will take its rest. And of course, this is built into the larger motif of exile and restoration, return. Um, and so it's really poignant for that. I, I got kids and I worry about environmental things in the world. And I think this, if you take economics and environment and look at them together, it's a pretty concise explanation of what's yeah. happening, right? Yeah. You don't give the land rest and there are consequences. It'll spit you out. It'll take its rest if you don't give it. It's a beautiful moment that I would never find if I just said, mm. you know, and my um, nine-year-old did say at the beginning of Leviticus, this, is this a cookbook for sacrifices? <laughs> right? And it's okay. You can laugh and you can go, yeah, these chapters are the cookbook for sacrifice and we're going to read through them, but we'll get to some other things. Yeah. So there's an example okay. for you. That's, That's really great. interesting. Yeah. I mean, if so it, it occurs to me as you say that, I mean, the first point that you made that sort of that wrestle, like we're, we're looking for the assumptions brought by the people. We're looking for where where God actually came into the story. And we're taking sort of our modern day things that we're bringing and wrestling with that story. Yep. Arguably, you could say that you could get the most out of a, a text like the Hebrew Bible in your scripture study because nothing is being spoon fed to you. Like it forces potentially a wrestling yeah. more than any other book of scripture that I'm familiar with. I think so. And I think because of that, it's a great comfort to me because mm -hmm. we wrestle, right? We do not always live the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you'll right. find a lot of those same values in the Hebrew, but in the Hebrew Bible, sometimes they come in the midst of this other churn in a clear way. I mean, yeah. I think the Book of Mormon has a lot of that. And Definitely. there's fewer barriers of language and that kind of thing. I think it's a good, uh, an investigator on my mission said, 
oh, I think I figured it out. This is the Middle Testament, right? And I kind of yeah. like that way of thinking <laughs> yeah, yeah, of yeah. it, that it's got some of those beautiful covenant features and the ups and downs that I that I really appreciate, some of these other things. That's but, but absolutely, there's yeah. there's a lot to find there if you let yourself. Yeah. So let me ask you then, let's set scripture aside. You're a historian for the church. How do you approach history? I mean, if you're if you're a believing Latter-day Saint and you're interested in church history or you feel like it's just like something you haven't tapped into yet, is that a similar approach? Like, are you reading I these stories? I think it's almost exactly the same, right? Wow. Like, I think we reject church history and Hebrew Bible Old Testament for the same reasons, because we want to take one standard mm -hmm. and we want to just sort Good, bad, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost what Jesus told us not to do in that parable of wheat and tares, because he's going, it's all mixed together, guys. You right. can't oh. you can't tear the one out without tearing out the other. So when I go to church history, I try to have an open mind. I try to do things and and one way I talk to people about it is I say so often in the past we've used it as evidence for the truth of our faith. Yes. Right? Set that aside. Approach this as laboratories of discipleship. People are experimenting with what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a chosen people to seek God under different conditions, dealing with different things with their own problems. Once you do that, it's fascinating, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes it really works. And sometimes it falls apart in tragic and instructive ways. And so I really try very hard to suspend judgment a little bit in church history and get in and empathize with people. And as I do, I consistently find myself, I would say maybe deepened is a word, right? It deepens uh -huh. my faith mm -hmm. to study church history because I see how people like really did it yeah. in the struggle of life. Okay. So Sorry. we probably have the <laughs> we same question. We might be having the same question. So here's, here's my question. Okay. You could arguably apply that same process to any difficult history. I mean, Christianity, uh, uh, Catholicism, Protestantism, sure. they all have, I mean, and every world, major world religion has difficult history to reckon with. And typically they all have also done what we've done, which is use their history to prove the truthfulness of their claims. So if that's true. We, we may lean a little farther into that than okay. some traditions, but okay. it varies, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, so if, but if we could, if we, do you agree, I guess, first of all, that we could apply that process? Yes, to learn absolutely. A, a right. Piece. And honestly, I think if you're studying Catholic history and your whole point, if you're doing the opposite, right, I'm going to study Catholic history for evidence that Catholicism is broken. Like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not going to get that much out of it. If you study Catholic history to see the hand of God in these people's lives, I think you can learn okay. a lot. Okay. Wow. I totally agree with you. And the question that follows then for me is for you, why, why Mormonism? Why engage more deeply with this faith and, you know, be uh, fully in in its rituals and its ordinances? Oh, I just love it so then. much. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, that... Was this a big, flat, fat, slow pitch? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of it is I just like the taste of it, right? That Mormonism is so interesting and weird <laughs> yeah, and delightful. Yeah. And I think there's that. I mean, I also do feel like there is a uniqueness, right? That like... Here in this modern world, and like right on the cusp of so many, uh, we we did this thing once at Church History where we looked and we said we want to show how time passed afterwards and before pioneer travel, right? Okay. And and it's interesting. You have someone who 
walked the Mormon trail as a girl and lived to see the moon landing, right? Like just wild. That is wild. Yeah. You go the other way, transportation technology does not change a lot (laughs) back to the Roman (laughs) Empire, right? Like it's just, and so I think the restoration comes at this fascinating moment as there's a lot of changes going on that give us conditions. We're still wrestling with how do we digest living in this different world And that's where God injects himself in and super interesting stuff happens. And I mean, I don't know. I really, I really like there's, there's little ways that Mormonism rereads, radically rereads the Bible that opens it up for me. Yeah. Right. And, and makes it a Urim and Thummim to me um, that I just can't do without the, the way we think of ourselves as divine to me is kind of a bridge between the. Eastern and Western religions. So Indian religions, Dharmic religions, we're a piece of God. Well, uh, I read that poem with the drops in the ocean, right? Mm. So in Sikhism, you talk about a human soul as a drop that goes back into God and becomes part of God, right? In uh, a lot of Western religions, there's this strong separation. God's creator, we're the the work of his hands. In Mormonism, we're God's kids, like yeah. Uh, so it's much cool. of Mormon theology consists of reading something that's in the others and be like, no, really. No, no, really. <laughs> right. And um, but to me, that's this bridge to say the Dharmic religions are onto something. There's this piece of divinity in us. Right. And I feel that at the same time. Right. I'm, I am this eternal individual. Right. Parts of me are going to I'm not. Not going to merge back into God, but but grow into godliness, mm. right? And in that sense, be reunited with this eternal relationship. I just love it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's satisfying, great. but I, I don't. Love it. No, that, yeah. That's great. I don't need it to be perfect. It's living, mm-hmm. right? And I think that living side is has been just so important for me personally. Mm. Can you read one of my one of our favorite poems? Was the builders. On page twenty three, would you? This feels like no. a this feels like a time. I, can we start with another one? I kind of want to build up to this. This is okay, a okay. lot. It I have lot. another favorite that comes okay. before that that okay. maybe like introduce some humanity into our church history. Just because the builder is going to be tough okay. for some people. Yeah, well, but yeah, that's true. we can do the Joseph. Okay, you know where is that? Yeah. Okay. This is this was maybe my actual favorite. I like this is the one I was like texting people like, oh yeah. my gosh, like it just made me feel things. And I think it was, it just, it, it, um, I think that it sort of revealed how, how much I do that sorting. Like I want to sort into heroes and villains. And this kind of just like broke open my heart. Like there, there are wounded people who are trying really hard and like end of story. Yeah. I loved it. So the backstory to this poem is that I was looking at a blessing way back when I was a research assistant, student research assistant on Joseph Smith papers where Joseph Sr. is blessing Hiram. Mm. And one of the things that he tells Hiram, he's blessed for the times when he helped his father, when his father was out of the way with wine, (laughs) right? Which is this really interesting phrase and not the way you think of it. And I looked into it more and we don't have perfect records, right? But there's these kind of fragmentary things that suggest that in those hard years where the Smiths are moving from place to place and struggling to make a living and have been ripped off and had bad weather and whatever else, that there were periods when Joseph drank really heavily, right? Yeah. And where that was a struggle. And that's very typical of that generation, right? That generation of Americans drank like three times what we do on average. Yeah, I did right? not know that. Right? 
So this poem is about Joseph Sr. imagining almost midrashically ourselves into yes. this moment. We don't know, but we're going we're gonna to imagine. Yeah. In the spring, he sows hope, but come fall, he reaps only the empty wind. So all through the long Vermont winter, there's a bottle in his hand. He drinks like Noah to drown a flood's worth of sorrows, drinks until he staggers to and fro as earth itself will in the end. This is how I understand that story where his son, infection arching through the bone, turns down the surgeon's offer of anesthetizing liquor. I don't need that, the boy says to his father. I just need you. So for me, this was one of those moments, right, where I'm connecting. And, and the same story reads a different way because in Lucy's telling, he says, Bring dad, right? Yeah. Just tell dad, all I need is for him to hold me. And there's this different poignance when you think, and I don't know if I'm correct historically that, that the times line up, but I think it's important to allow this possibility and to let, let these people in our history be this sort of human. Yeah. Yeah, Beautiful. Exactly. Could we, well, uh, this probably doesn't make great for great listening, but I did want to dive back into Let Me Drown With Moses. That is okay. the name of that poem, right? Um, cause I had a prayer on the red sea. Oh, prayer on the red sea shore. Thank you. Okay. Okay. If these walls of water fall, oh Lord, let me drown with Moses. Yes. Let me die with the same fire in my eyes. Moses saw in a desert bush. And my initial reaction is an emotional one that says that, that this feels really beautiful. The language is beautiful. Um, the sentiment of sort of loyalty and faith is really beautiful. But when I bring my mind into it, and sort of get a little more logical, I start, it starts pushing back a little bit on this idea that there, that there is a loyalty so complete to someone that I would actually give up my life. And I feel like that, that type of loyalty historically has gone, has gone wrong at times. And I think this is something that we actually struggle with inside, inside our tradition, where there's a little bit, there can be a little bit too much push toward like the external authority side and not enough internalization of authority. Um, and so I want to hear, and I, I, I'm getting the sense based on your previous answers that you think about a lot of things in a non-dualistic way. And so I think you're going to have a, have a great <laughs> answer here, but like, how do you, how do you reckon? I mean, so the if you take this way far, the very yep. worst case scenario is this is a cult and the leader has asked yep. you to do the equivalent sure. of drown with, with him and you do so. And guess so, what? Now you're, now you're gone. Okay. I think you're correct that there is a certain terror <laughs> to religious devotion mm -hmm. and specifically to religious vision, right? That same fire in my eyes. The alternative to me is totally unpalatable. And that's complacency with the world as we know it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that this guy's living a his best life. <laughs> And then Moses sweeps him up and he can move on. The alternative is slavery in Egypt for you and your children and their children, right? And so here's this man who says, I don't know. We're out here running <laughs> from Pharaoh's army. I don't know if it ends here and if we die, but I would rather have this vision than be trapped forever in a world where all you can be is a slave. Wow. And I don't think that that's just then, right? Part, I, 
I am fully aware <laughs> that, that religion can go crazy, right? I've studied history. I've studied religion. Yep. Um, and yet to me, you, you can't, sometimes I think we do an absolute. This is what I wish things were like. And here's what they are. They're this crazy mess instead. And to me, it's always been important to say comparatively, right? What else is there? And I am just not happy enough with the modern world as we know it to not be religious, right? I'm this guy and I will take the peril of prophetic vision because it comes with this, this possibility, right? And, and it matters to me to make that gamble. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I know it's quick for another reading, but it reminds me of the other poem. Uh, I think it's Losing Faith. Uh, Is that the one yes. about the love's <laughs> tapestry? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah that's okay. That's okay. We can go <laughs> there. Really... All your ideas. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I like the other one. I, we I really... can get to. We can get to <laughs> okay. next. Okay. I, just, I like this one faith. because I, I felt like this one really resonated with me a lot, but I, w I would love to hear what it means to you. So maybe we can t you can read it first and then we can talk about it. Losing faith. I don't want to leave you, but I don't. Okay, I, I'm going to preface this by saying it's part of a longer cycle of poems within the book. And these are very influenced by Punjab, North, North Indian poetry and this devotional imagery about God. But, but God and it's like romantic imagery, right? And that's sometimes weird to people, but that's it works. there's a long oh, tradition mm -hmm. of doing this, right? Yeah. So losing faith. I don't want to leave you, but I don't want you close. Sometimes a little love is pure pain. Why do I dread your coming? Is my heart sick or unfaithful? Maybe drained of its blood through the hole you cut. Wanting you was a labor and a bliss. Forgetting you is excruciating. If only the steering of destiny's ship could turn autumn to spring. Even the dead of winter would be better than watching these leaves fall. Your friends came to comfort me. You know, the ones you compared to salt? Well, how do you think they feel against my wounds? Did you betray me? Or did I misunderstand you from the beginning? Who can still trace love's threads when the tapestry unravels? Okay, this time we start with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you I can tell you in the few weeks since I've read this book, this line about even the dead of winter would be better than watching the leaves fall. I, I mean, I feel like that is true in every context. Like there's something about the anticipation of something being lost that is the actual thing that is untenable. And once you're in the situation, like there's work to do and there's a next step. But I think this this situation is terrifying and most especially in the context of your faith. Like when you feel like belief is slipping through your fingers and you can't imagine what dead of winter looks like, but you feel it coming. I think that's terrifying. And I and I resonated with that last line about, is it even possible to trace the threads of what's totally unraveled? Like, is there anything left? It just feels like this big tangled mess of you don't even know what. And and for me, re reconstructing faith really did look like finding those threads that did feel like love. Like for, for a long time, I felt like that was the only thing that I could recognize. It was like love or not love. Like something, some things felt expansive and beautiful and big. And I think that was those threads of love. And eventually they became something again. But for a long time, like that is the <laughs> metaphor that really works. Like it is a, it is a big tangled mess of thread that could never be un untangled. So but, but I would love to yep. hear what you meant. <laughs> Take it away, James. No, I mean, that's good, right? And, and I think that's one of the tough things when we talk about 
this is, I don't know the answers to this, but there's clearly a communication gulf between people who are living faith and people mm -hmm. who are in various stages of what this poem is trying to articulate, yeah. right? But part of it is on the other side, right? <laughs> Who, who can still trace love's threads when the tapestry is unraveled, right? The story you're telling at that moment where you're feeling pretty thoroughly deconverted, mm -hmm. right, is as affected by that experience as before. And so, yeah, we talked about a trunk and, and branches within two faiths that diverge. I think that's the same. When, when you're leaving faith, it's, it's a different evolution. And to mm -hmm. come, to come back is, yeah, it's it's hard to talk across that gulf because yeah. the way that yeah, maybe maybe there are still threads that are there that you can feel, but but the tapestry's broken. So I don't know. Yes. I think you did a yeah. better job than I did well, I <laughs> of love explaining it. that one. But yes, I think hopefully we have listeners who feel this. And sometimes it really does help to just name that feeling. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I say. Like there's, there's something I think for me, poetry is always about that. Like hearing something articulated in a wheel, in a way that feels like viscerally true. It just, and, and having there's, it's like a, I don't know. There's like something supernatural about it. Like hearing something <laughs> or just like nailed down so exactly is just, it's freeing. Like it's a relief to just have it out. And and I think sometimes like you need a you need a poet to be able to do that for you to express something that you just can't even you can't even quite yeah. say. And that is, I feel like that's such a valuable role of poetry in culture. And it was actually interesting. I mean, I haven't looked at this book a lot lately. It's years old now, <laughs> right? Um, but when you emailed me about it and I picked it up again, it was so interesting to me to feel my way into the book mm. and the different shape of thinking there is when you're going through poetry than like social media cycles. Wow. Because I've just yeah. been kind of watching those and feeling, right? Here's the thing and you have an immediate reaction and how do you manage? And this like distilled, processed, slower kind of thinking it's just very different, right? Yes. And I think we're at a time when we get caught up in the one a lot, and it would be good to give ourselves that time with the other. Yeah. yeah. I think that what you're saying is probably appealing to a lot of people who are hearing you say that and wanting to get out of those sometimes toxic social media cycles. Um, you write, I think it's an introduction to Let Me Drown With Moses, that the world gave up on poetry a century ago. Um, I would be curious to hear what, what you, how you saw that, what you meant by that, but also how do we re-engage with it and what would be the value of doing so? Yeah. That's a little bit tongue in cheek, right? Clearly we <laughs> yeah, still yeah. listen to song right. lyrics, right? Yeah. Which are a subset of poetry and those are important. And actually, you know, there are a subset of po poets who have done very well, like on Instagram specifically, mm -hmm. right? Where they... They develop these like short form, distill a feeling down to a few yeah. words, sometimes something drawn with it. Yeah. And that's a way that people have connected. So we're seeing a little resurgence there. But but in terms of the difference, um, Grace Noel Crowell is the name of the poet who wrote Because I Have Been Given Much. Mm. I think that particular poems, 20s or 30s, 1920s or 30s, mm. sold tons and tons, huge deal in the pre-World War II years, right? 
totally forgotten in our poetic consciousness now, right? In our sort of collective memory, only preserved in that hymn book form, which is interesting. So that's part of what I meant about we gave up. It used to be that people would gather to read poems together. People would memorize poetry. Yeah. And and we don't do that the same way. And I'm not sure that song lyrics are quite the same in terms of the modes of thinking and the same – like definitely a good song can give you a nice cathartic release, but I don't know. I feel I feel like it's different yeah. in the way Sam Shepard, the playwright, once said he tries to write plays that help people feel in their minds. And that's maybe not a bad description for some of what poetry can do. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's part of what I mean by that by that gap. Yeah. Right. What do you think what do you think about poetry in the early church? I mean, when you when you look back like do you think it was functioning in the same way? With like was it is it was it a distillation process for the entire new like this very new culture of church worship? Yeah, I think so. Um there's a lot of poetry writing and a lot of it is individual people trying to make sense mm-hmm. of their lives and what they're doing and mark moments mm-hmm. and say what's important to me, what matters to me. Um And then you do have other writers who are trying to distill these bigger insights. I mean, Oh, My Father, famously, a a poem first, right, before a song. And that's a distillation of this this important teaching and and insight. Um, And then you'll see other things that we've kind of forgotten about the – the saints have really complicated feelings about the United States after they, yeah. you know, leave <laughs> and then get reintegrated. Um, and you see Eliza R. Snow sort of processing those different times and other writers doing it. Um, and then even later, you know, uh, so Josephine Spencer is a poet who uh, BCC Press has re-release some of her work. And there's a poem of hers called The World's Way that I've loved for years and years, where she's just thinking about kind of the injustices of her day, right? And how do I, how how can I ask these questions that bother me about injustice and inequality? And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So, I mean, one thing you need to remember when you look at Mormon literary history is there were like not that many people in the early church. So yeah. if you expect like tons of poetry that's really polished and great, like <laughs> statistically, no, this is a very small really group yeah, yeah. of people yeah. doing their best. And some of it ends up really interesting. Some of it's maybe more of historical interest yeah. than immediate like visceral connection mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Well, along those lines, yeah. yeah. Aubrey, I don't know if you would mind telling this story yeah. about this this book yeah, so but i just she's been reading me out of she's been reading me yeah. poems out of this book every day for the past couple of weeks it's just fascinating for the, all those reasons that you mentioned so i found well, as we were preparing for this interview what my daughter's just randomly pulled this book off our bookshelf which is a collection of poems from one of our ancestors levi hancock and i, I just like levi yeah we yeah right like i i i've heard his stories always you know Growing up, but I was not familiar with his poetry. And then when we were kind of really getting into like, what what did Mormon po- poetry look like and mean for the early church? I was, you know, of course, super interested. But maybe I can just read like a sure. little piece of his yeah. poems are all so long, but I'm going to just pick and choose. <laughs> I'll just read like a few stanzas because this one for me was so interesting because it, it, it puts you in the place of like this very specific, this very specific time and place in, in Mormon history, like something that 
we're so familiar with. And I've never considered like, you know, that he woke up every morning and lived in this exact moment before. So this was actually written in 1837. So just months before the Hans Mill massacre. The year before. Yes. Because it's October of Of 1838, right? Yeah. So so this is a year before. So he's, okay. So it's called My Peaceful Home. So, and he's very uh, rhymy which we're going to appreciate. So far in the realm of Missouri, where runs the shoal of water like fury, along by the wide spreading peony, I've reared up my dwelling in peace. Oh, here, here beside the fire, I'll take my sweet babe and little Mosiah. And here's mother, I seat me down beside her. And here at my home, I'll live and have peace. Off from the fount, while water I'm bringing, my ears are charmed to hear birds singing. In songs so sweet, they keep the peace ringing. While here at my home, I'll live and have peace. All glory be to God, the good giver of peace bestowed upon the believer. Oh, may we sing his praises forever. And when he comes, behold him in peace. And when he in the clouds is returning and all of the wicked before him is mourning, may we be happy to escape burning and be caught with him to live and have peace. And I just like, and he goes through, you know, on Uh. and on about his cows leave in the morning, they come back and the things are growing and they have honey. And like, he's just like joyful about this new home in, in far West. Yeah. With no, and like we know the rest of the yeah. story and it's just like heartbreaking to realize like they were in Zion like they like had finally found somewhere safe and sound and they were just like just now, thrilled it does add a lot of poignancy the way yeah. that the poetry helps you get into landscape mm-hmm. um there's a collection called songs of Joel that was Joel Hills Johnson he just sort of wrote that that's mm-hmm. where we get high on a mountaintop from oh, okay it's just his little poetry yeah. journal but that's another one where you can just kind of imagine yourself into mm-hmm. him in this Utah setting feeling I don't know like they're they're building this connection to land right and yes. feeling God's presence and it's kind of neat to see Historians will talk about modernity disenchanting the world. Mm. It's interesting to see the saints actively enchanting it, right? Through their poetry and stuff. Now, you mentioned the rhyminess, which is not like (laughs) in vogue now. One thing that's kind of cool about rhyming poetry, and one way I'd imagine a poem like this going, is it makes it easier for people to improvise and to get together. So like if you go to a wedding, my sixth side of the family... Sometimes one of the pre-wedding nights when we're all together as a family and celebrating, people start throwing off these verses of improvised poetry, kind of making fun of each other or that kind of thing. And then somebody else replies. And if you've got a rhyme scheme and recurring refrains like that Mm -hmm. piece, 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 it's easier to improvise. It's almost kind of jazz, right? Theme and variation. And so if you imagine early saints not just sitting down composing with a notebook, mm-hmm. but sitting around wow. having coming up with battles. these ways to talk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that here's the ways that we're exchanging some thoughts about what it means. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then now here I'm watching my cows and that kind of thing and more are coming. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then in the evening I go write it all down. It, it's, it's a neat way to think of yeah. poetry in community as part of their experience. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. And I will say, okay. Within history, Right. Sometimes we'll hyperfixate on here are things that that happened. This happened. But that's only a percent of life is what happened. A lot of life is how do we feel about it? How right. do we think about it? How do we frame it? Right. And I think sometimes it's the creative expression 
that fleshes the history out and makes it yes. human, oh, right? Definitely. Because it gives us so much of what feeling were they bringing to these moments. Yeah. So one thing that I thought was kind of troubling and that you really kind of have to face as you're reading Let Me Drown with Moses is this idea that we're kind of, we're always the, in, 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 church poetry this early church poetry we're always like the victors like we're the we're the ones god has chosen and the ones god is protecting and our enemies will be taken care of for us and 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 we do that you know all the way into salt lake where we kind of become the enemy to people who were here and i and it feels like throughout our history maybe we've tried to really escape that reckoning this this idea that like we were the nightmare for for people who we're first, you know, yep. and, and, and it felt like in your book, you really started, you know, wrestling with that fact, like the fact that maybe we weren't, we weren't innocent in, in every scenario. So yeah. could you talk about that chapter? Like what was your intent with that chapter? Yeah. So I've got sections about violence in Utah County. Those were written when I was living in Provo mm -hmm. and I don't know, as I, as I just got more into the history and saw what happened, it was important to me to wrestle with that and and interesting to me how much we've forgotten it. Yes. Right? Like that, um, and you have scholars who have written about this, that, that when people later in Utah Valley would tell stories about uh, Timpanogos people, it would be in the mountains, right? Mm -hmm. We just sort of forgot that, no, like they lived on the lake, right? That's where yeah. you fish, that's where you gather, and and so there's disruption. So so yeah, I wrote a cycle of poems that just dealt with that. I think partly for myself, trying to bring that memory back into the landscape around me. Right? I think it's great yeah. with Levi Hancock that he's got this sense of Zion and God, and that's good. And I think we should live in an enchanted landscape. Mm -hmm. But maybe the landscape should be a little haunted too. You know and. And maybe then, I don't know. And I think I think there are things you can do to honor even violent, painful history. And like as Latter-day Saints, we think of ways to honor the dead and, and redeem history and hold memory and those matter. And so, yeah, in Let Me Drum with Moses, there's a whole cycle of, I think, 10 poems that deal with this, this violent conflict where... You know, definitely the the heavy, in addition to the general colonial encounter, right, that yeah. that settlers sometimes don't know how they're disrupting life. You know, if your cattle are eating the seeds and you don't realize people were gathering those, right, there's the invisible parts. There's also the parts where you knew you screwed up and you lied about it. And and so I think the in poetry, I wanted to reckon both with the the unseen sins and the seen sins and and how do we carry those right yeah. because i think it's important that we do it it did feel like a repentance kind of you know it felt there's something about just like acknowledging the things that happened on the provo river river in rock canyon that just knowing that that existed and and like sitting with it even just helped make make those places feel sacred in a way that i hadn't appreciated and i'm not sure what there is to do about it now but it felt important to at least acknowledge it and make it part of our history and it wasn't it like i didn't know i didn't know these stories so yeah. i don't know yeah that felt important yeah and yeah. hopefully i've written a lot of poetry about history both in let me drum with moses and i've got a collection called song of names and and i think it is important because 
we do want to feel history, right? Mm -hmm. We want our hearts to turn, right? Right. And hearts turning doesn't mean that we just celebrate some stories. It means they turn and they empathize and we connect with everybody, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Should we do that reading that we were... You want to do the builders? I can do the builders now. I just wanted to build up today. They need to read it by themselves. Okay. (laughs) The builders. Let's say it took 60 years for the first generations to lay a foundation for this faith we share. Another 60 for those who came after to raise up the walls of practice that protect us. That puts us around 1950 when the builders climbed up on the first planks of the roof, got a chance to look out and take in the view of a wide open world, which makes it 2010, another 60 years later, when the roof is in good solid shape and my friends start jumping off. And that is the builders. So, uh, okay, what's going on here? I think partly when I approach history, one thing that's important to me is I I don't want to see God in absolute terms as just like dropping things out fully, but we don't believe in creation ex nihilo, right? Mm. We believe in a God who even building the world shaped elements and brought it together. And that was pretty theologically important for the first generation of saints, right? Mm. Parley P. Pratt can go on for pages that he's a builder, right? Yeah. It's, it's not out of nothing. And that's one of those things in the Mormon view of God that's that's different and that matters. But sometimes I think we want God to reveal ex nihilo, right? Mm. Yes. Instead of letting revelation proceed in that same building thing. And so when I look at church history, the first generation, they're working from some pretty raw materials mm. and putting things together. And things we really value, like the word, the word of wisdom is received in the first generation, but it takes them a long time to get consistent about that, right? Oh, yeah. Where yeah. it's just a norm you take for granted. I really value having grown up with that, right? Mm. I feel like my life has been a lot easier because I never had to roll the dice on how my genetics would respond to alcohol, right? Um, so I'm grateful, but it took time. It's not just... What I have inherited from this faith is not just abstract knowledge, it's lived experience. It's mm-hmm. it's the strength of community norms. So I value all of that, right? Now, the reason I was a little hesitant about this is because the end can feel pretty harsh to people, right? In 2010, this is what I'm feeling is, man, there's so many things we put together. And yes, there's still stuff, but sometimes we're bailing because of problems when when a solution takes a long time to build. I guess mm-hmm. this is the thing I felt like friends didn't always understand is that if you walk away from an institution, a lot of the problems you want solved, take institutions, take norms, take these other things to address. And and so you're you're starting over maybe mm. on a process and you are not going to solve the problems you want to solve at once just by saying this is what ought to be this is right it it takes time. Yeah. Um by the same token if you're struggling right and it feels to you like hey this part of the building's on fire well jumping off the roof right. feels a lot more appealing then right? That's a really and, good point. Yeah. yeah. And so I I don't 
I don't want people to read this in terms of, of judgment, but it was my way of distilling down the way that developing approaches to things is an intergenerational project. Mm. And I feel like it's important to continue the intergenerational work of pursuing a vision of Zion. And, and sometimes we are, we are complacent, right? We, we think that having an insight about what would work better means that we can also enact that insight um, and a failure to enact that insight, like walking right. away from that is going to solve the problem. And I don't right. think that's how the world works. Yeah. I love that metaphor like that. We have always talked about how, you know, it's it's much easier to throw rocks at the house, you know, like it's way like everybody can see the problems and it's way easier to just point and throw. And and I, I agree, like sometimes that's the healthiest thing to do to like you to, for you to walk away. But for for us who feel like we can stay, it's a, it, it, I think it, I love the, this idea that like we are builders and we, we didn't, we weren't invited into this perfect house. Like we're part of the construction and we just, um, read the new volume of saints. And so I like that 1950 was kind of one, what got its yeah. own stanza because that was mind blowing. Like the way that the church evolved so much in those decades that were kind of, to me, they were sort of, I never think about them, you know, like there's like pioneer church and then there's what we have now. And it was so cool to like see the link and how, how much the church really had to evolve and stretch and, and modernize in those decades. And, and it's just, it, I felt like it's an, it's a metaphor that challenges you, but it's also just like so optimistic. It feels like there's nothing wrong with the fact that there wasn't a roof in 1950. It was just, that was the work that was of that the generation. Stage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think maybe it can be freeing to say yes. this generation was doing this work mm-hmm. and I don't need to treat it as if it was complete. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And maybe some of what we're doing now is, um, so theater was my original field before I got into history mm-hmm. and writing and that kind of thing. And in theater, you talk a lot about suspension of disbelief to inhabit the story. You suspend your disbelief. Right. And sometimes maybe we need to do that suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm as the type of faith to say, we're going to put the, mm. this aside. We're going to suspend our our concerns a little bit. They're still important. But then in order to to get a vision of what's happening and what could happen. Yes, yeah. I love that. I, Maybe, do you have one more? No, I, was just, I, I mean, I was just thinking during this whole discussion, it was really fascinating. I, I'm having like mental conversations with people that I know would have opinions about this. <laughs> and one of the like pushbacks that I'm getting from this yeah. theoretical imaginary person, person, imaginary person, <laughs> who is actually a real person, is like, we... We talk about the church as like a as a thing, right? That's separate from us, like the building potentially. We could call it the church. Maybe that's one of the metaphors. Um, and th- there's this question of like, you know, how much can we affect the church? How, how much can we mold the church? And the pushback that I'm getting mentally is, we are the church. And so it takes it it takes this poem to a whole like different place for me. If you say we're not only the builders, we are also the materials. And then I'm like, Michael Jackson, like man in the mirror, you know, like, what, how am I going to, how am I going to affect this? I, I'm going to yeah. look inside. I'm going to look inside myself first. Yep. That's the, that's the first place to go. If it, and, mm-hmm. and that also entails. Well, a, and I think there's a lot to be said for that because a lot of the way the gospel is really passed on is so personal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how is it managing in families? And sometimes when people are wanting to come back to church, but struggling, when I've worked with them, a lot of it is like, okay, how do you separate your family experience growing up and the stuff that wasn't working 
from what you want right. to create and what you want to be. Yeah. Right? Like that's where you can have the same words, the same abstract beliefs, but all that other stuff we bring to it matters a lot. Word relationships are very much the same mm. way. So that there are things that matter that, that we can't control that's part of this larger thing. Yeah. But how it's inflected, how it's lived, like that, that matters a lot. And that is in us, right? And a lot of it then is not going to come out super consciously, right? It's that right. question of what are the things that you are teaching that you don't know you're teaching. Yeah. Yes. But as your kids watch, as your friends watch, as your totally. board members watch. And that's why it's so important to work on who you are and not just what you think you should say. Yeah. So you say, I mean, is that what you mean in the in the introduction? You talk about how important it is for everyone to tend to their native language. Like, is that what you're talking about? Like, you even... I, I feel like there's this idea that like you can walk away and it's out of you. But like I feel like what you're saying is like there it's it's deep inside. Like it's gonna take work to realize what's you know, what wounds you have or or what gifts you have and and it, and maybe that's like part of the work of every life. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I actually had not thought about it quite that way, right? Because when I say native language, I mean the stories, the metaphors, the mm -hmm the mind maps, right, is like so Mormon for me mm. that I feel like Mormon literature is important that we that we use the, the literal the language literature thing because yeah. this is our language. And, and honestly, that's a gift God gave us, right? Part of revelation is just language. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, so, yeah. and so you need to use it. And that's that, that mm. sword that can cut, it's a tool in the scriptures, right? To do things. Um, and and yeah, so I think it's really important to use your language. It's interesting though that yeah, you you can walk away from active involvement in the community, but the language is still part of you mm -hmm. and is going to shape your assumptions. And so it is interesting. I have a lot of people who I'll talk to about my poetry and writing who aren't involved in church anymore, but something still speaks to them or resonates. Wow. And and that's part of it, right? Is that yeah. That the language tongue. shapes you almost in this. Yeah. It's always your mother tongue, right? You mm -hmm. can leave, you can move to another country. You can say, and I mean, many people have left a country because they felt like it wasn't working. And yet there's different things you're going to accomplish working in that mother tongue than picking up the second language. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we missed? I know we didn't get quite to oh. everything, but is there anything <laughs> yes. that we just cannot miss that you want to so be well, sure to talk okay. about? I I will just say that many people listening to this may not be up on contemporary Mormon poetry. <laughs> and that's <Maybe>. okay. <laughs> that's okay. But you should try it. Mm. And, um, and there's just a lot of great writers um, and you should read them. So my wife and I do a contest called the Mormon Lit Blitz. We've got an anthology of the first five years of finalists. The second anthology is coming out end of this year. And that's one way to have a sampler. Yes. Cool. Okay. Um, I do, if, if there's one other person's book, I might put at the top of a recommendation list. It's Homespun and Angel Feathers by Darlene Young. Mm. I'm going to read you just yes, a poem from her. This is called uh, Kintsukoroi for Joseph Smith. So that's the this Japanese art form. When something breaks, you repair oh, okay. with the, the gold where yeah, you can the pottery, see the yeah. lines. And so she's engaging. She's not a historian, right? But, but still engaging in that action of how do I 
take these pieces of somebody, right? An acknowledgement that it's not there and yes. and honor that. So I, yeah. Planted in farm dirt and manure, he faced eternity and translated for us. Meeting of meat and light, bucket, shovel, axe transubstantiated, receiver, transmitter, amplifier. He would bring us with him, modulate us to a higher key. Yes, he was rough. The coarse coupling, the intersection of dimensions dirty and divine, the rustic needle on the holy phonograph. But I can forgive the static. Who wants a perfect prophet? Hick and height, scrub and scripture, limp and lamp. He was a handshake with the heavens, calloused hands, constellations unnumbered, matter and antimatter. Not immaterial, his fumble and slop, his gimpy stuttering lope towards loft. I need his lusty, sloppy flaws. I am drab and itch myself. I prefer a dusty plow. I'll make my home here among the homespun and angel feathers. Wow. I just love that, right? Yeah. And the, and the mode of thinking it represents. Yes. Uh, this is Mary Jane Rice. Her first collection is called Messages on the Water. One interesting thing about her is she's in the process of writing a poem for every come follow me oh, lesson. Wow. Really? So her New Testament book is out. Uh, she's doing Old Testament now. Wow. Um, so you can kind of watch her drafting and then it'll come wow. out, I'm sure, sometime next year. Um, but this was the first Mary Jane Rice poem I ever read. And it's just always stuck with me. And I think part of the reason this stuck sticks with me is because of the people I've shared it with, where it's meant a lot to them. And so the poem becomes this marking point in my relationships. Mm -hmm. It's called Stillborn. You were wanted, not an accident. Your first fluttering cells sent plans pulsing, names, knitting, nursery colors, universities. Though two others came before, I saved a part for you. Sometimes a heart stops beating and dreams bleed free in a slow red river of barren pain. No healing prayers, no reasons sought, none given. Just one of those things. But it wasn't an accident. You were wanted elsewhere. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, James. Well, tell us her name again. Where, That's where Mary, Jane Rice, oh, Mary Jane Rice, M-E-R-R-I for the Mary. Okay. Mary Jane Rice. Thank you. Yeah. This is beautiful i feel like we have fun homework yeah thank you again this i mean your i mean and your own contribution to this uh i mean yeah. to history and poetry and everything is really remarkable thank you for being who you are well so so good to talk to you all right thanks so much for listening we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with james goldberg and a big thanks to james for coming on the show if faith matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance we would love for you to leave us a review on apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on we read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about faith matters and we appreciate the support thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org <laughs>